today as we embark on a new study in the last book of the Bible, Lord, the last but certainly not least. Uh, uh, it's a very challenging book to say the least, Lord, and you know that, and uh, you've written it in a way that uh, only those who study it and study the rest of your word can understand it. Lord, if there's anyone here to, who, today who, who doesn't know you as their Savior, then uh, Lord, uh, we know it's going to be very difficult for them because uh, this book, as we'll see today, was written to your children, to to those who are born again. And so, Lord, uh, if if you're if someone's here today and doesn't understand it, let today be the day of their salvation. Just challenge them and open their eyes where they can see what we're going to be looking at here today. It is the great truths that are contained in this book and in the rest of your Word, Father. We we do need your Holy Spirit, as always, to, to guide us through this study, and so we ask for your blessing on this book. And Lord, as we know, this, we'll see again today that, that this book promises us a blessing when we read it and when we study it. And Lord, uh, we're excited about what you're going to show us. We're excited about the times in which we live, and, and Lord, we're, we're excited most of all that, about our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray in his precious name, amen. Men. On January of this year, January of 2017, the atomic scientists who control the doomsday clock moved it forward to two and a half minutes till midnight. That's the closest it's been to the end uh, since they've been keeping time on that clock. And the reason they moved it forward is that they believe that all of the nationalism that's taking place in the world, this movement of Islam, this strife between Russia and the United States, have moved the world to the brink of World War III. And when that happens, they believe that's the end of the world forever. It's gone. Humanity will be wiped out and it's over. And they're not the only ones who believe that the time of the end is near. Since World War II, when we dropped those two atomic bombs on Japan, uh, there's been a lot of people who have taken up the uh, call of, uh, or taken up the subject of doomsday, and they believe that it is very, very near, that it is inevitable. You can go all the way back to World War II. At the end of World War II, Winston Churchill himself said, Time may be very, very short for the human race. The world is at the end of its tether. And the end of everything we call life is close at hand. Douglas MacArthur, that great general who fought in World War II, said that, that, that we have had our last chance. God has given us our last chance. In our day, there's all sorts of secular scientists and philosophers who are saying that the apocalypse is very, very near. Uh, Raymond Fosdick, the former head of the Rockefeller Foundation, had this to say. He said, to many ears comes the sound of the trumpet of doom. Time is short. Stephen Hawkins, that Cambridge physicist that uh, is so popular in the world today, uh, believes that we're on the verge of the end of the world. Uh, and he says if the wars don't cause it, he says there's a catastrophic vacuum decay. I don't know what that is, but it's looming and, and uh, that time and space uh, will no longer exist. Those who say that the apocalyptic clock is about to strike midnight, I believe, are exactly right. But they're also wrong because the apocalypse is not the same thing as doomsday. Doomsday means the end of everything. The apocalypse means the beginning of a great age in which Jesus Christ takes total control and reign of this earth and there's truly peace on earth, goodwill to men. So we long for the apocalypse. But even so, uh, we too believe that the clock is close to striking 
midnight. J.R. Mott had this to say. He says, when you, recently, when, when I think of the human tragedy of the Christian ideals sacrificed as they have been recently, I can't help but believe God is preparing the way for some great, immense, immediate, direct action. And you look around at this world and you look at the exponential deterioration of morality just even here in the United States and it spawned all sorts of predictions that the apocalypse is very, very near. Uh, I don't know if you remember back and if you're old enough to remember, but back in the 1980s there was a man named Edgar uh, Wisenant and uh, he wrote a book entitled 88 reasons that the rapture will will be in 1988. Do you remember that book? And he has some good reasons. I got to tell you, we'll maybe talk about some of these a, a little later on as, through our study in, in Revelation. But, but uh, uh, he believed that the rapture was going to take place on Rosh Hashanah, the New, Jewish New Year in the fall. I mean, in, yeah, in the fall. Uh, in 1988, and he convinced, the book was very popular, it sold 5 million copies, and he convinced a lot of people that the apocalypse would take place uh, in that time frame that he had set up. Uh, it was so popular that, I don't know if you remember, but and I don't watch this network very often, but TVN, were, they had a thing called rapture alerts, and they were giving rapture alerts as to when the rapture was going to take place and special instructions so you would be sure to get raptured. Well, the only instruction to be sure you get raptured is to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only instruction I would give you. And I would certainly give you that instruction right now because I believe we're very, very close. I'm not setting dates, but we're very, very close. He wrote another book in 1993 uh, uh, entitled uh, 23 Reasons a Rapture Will Take Place in 1993. Now, he didn't sell many of those books <laughs> because he had already made his prediction and failed so nobody was listening. It would have been bad if it had happened in 1993. But... Well, you remember, and I know why he came, how he came up with the 1993, because you remember in the year 2000, people were saying this event called Y2K was going to take place, and all the computers in the world that handle all of the major uh, facilities of the world were going to shut down, and it was going to lead us into the Great Tribulation. So he backed up. Two, seven years from that to 1993 and came up with this idea that the rapture would be in 1993. I actually thought that was a possible date, not because of his book, but because I believe that the year, the, the 6,000 years is how long God has given man to rule this earth and the millennium is going to be that, la that last thousand years or really before we go into eternity, that last thousand years and so you got the number six, 6,000 years, the number seven, which is the number of God. And I believe that that matches up with the Sabbath. And the, the Sabbath, six days men will work, and on the seventh day he will rest. And that is a prophetic picture of all time that, that, that God is going to allow us from the day Adam was created, 6,000 years, and then... Uh, we will rest in the 7,000 years we call uh, the last 1,000 years of the 7,000 years we call the millennium. And I believe that is, ex if you want to know the date of the rapture, go figure out when Adam was born. When Adam, God created, actually he wasn't born, that God created Adam. And go 6,000 years forward from that date and you'll know exactly, oh really, uh, you'll know exactly when the millennium begins so you can back up seven years from there, you'll know exactly when the rapture begins. The trouble is nobody knows when God created the exact date when God created Adam. So we won't be able to figure that out. Last year, I don't know if you remember, seven, uh, a lot of people were predicting that, that the rapture would take place last year or the great tribulation would begin last year because uh, these blood moons that were going to take place on the Feast of Israel. And there were all sorts of people saying these have prophetic uh, implications and that uh, we can expect uh, the Lord to come get us really, really soon. 
Well, those blood moons came and went and nothing happened. So that's where you got to be careful uh, speculating on some of this stuff. Well, now, this year, 2017, there are a lot of procrastinators, not procrastinators, there's a lot of procrastinators too, prognosticators who are saying that the rapture will take place on Rosh Hashanah this year. And the reason they're saying that, and you can look this up on, on the internet or on YouTube, there's a lot of people that are that have making this case. The reason they're saying that is that the stars are going to align in such a way that the prophecy that's given to us in Revelation chapter 12 is going to be fulfilled. The sign of that prophecy is going to be fulfilled in the stars. And so we're going to go, uh, the great tribulation, the rapture is going to take place, and the great tribulation is going to begin on Rosh Hashanah of 2017. That happens to be September the 23rd of 2017, if you want to mark that on your calendars. I would mark that date on your calendars right now. I would mark that down, not just because it's Rosh Hashanah, but because it's also my birthday. <laughs> and I can't think of a better birthday present than for the Lord to come get me on Rosh Hashanah on my birthday. But I have a hunch he's not going to come on Rosh Hashanah this year. So don't quit saving up for my birthday presents and keep that, no, that date logged in your, in your book there. Now, regardless of what you think, you, you don't have to set a date. But you look around this world and the things that are going on in this world right now, and you have to realize that the clock is about to strike midnight. We're very, very close to the end. I mean, just last night, you saw this terrorist attack in Germany where this terrorist came in with a machine gun and yelled Allah Akbar and shot up a bunch of people, killed a couple. Uh, what bothers me the most about that isn't that the terrorists were in there, and that's not the most shocking thing. The shocking thing was that in the news they were saying uh, they're trying to figure out whether or not this is a terrorist attack or not. Hello, come on, people. I mean, we've got our heads buried in the sand. We've got a group of people that want to destroy the world and take power over this world and usher in their millennium. That's what they're looking to do. And that's kind of scary stuff, and we see that happening all the time. But that's not the only thing that's going on. That little fat dictator over in North Korea fired another missile, an ICBM, 2,500 miles up into space. Now, take 2,500 miles and draw a line from North Korea to the United States, and he can hit just about anywhere he wants in the United States now. That's pretty scary stuff, and something's going to have to be done about that. And when something's done about that, that could very well usher in World War III. I mean, we're, it's right there. I'm not looking forward to that part of it, certainly. But we're getting very, very close. Mikhail Gorbachev, in a couple of weeks ago, in an article, I mean, here was the former president or leader of the Soviet Union, and he said that the world had better beware. He says, no doubt the world is preparing right now for war. Russia is preparing for war. The United States is preparing for war. The Middle East is preparing for war. There are a lot of people who will tell you, very wise generals who will tell you, we have already entered World War III. When nine, those towers at 9-11 were attacked by those Muslim terrorists, World War III began. So there's just all sorts of things going on. China, look at what's going on with China. Just to, they've declared almost all of the South China Sea their own territory. Over one half of the ships of this world move through the South China Sea, and they've threatened to shut that down. And I and I I agree with Claude Beste, the the great French economist. When goods don't move. Armies do. 
they attempt to shut down the South China Sea, we will go to war with China. China has been running their destroyers on the, on, uh, near the, the Straits of Taiwan, actually inside the Straits of Taiwan. They've actually come into the territorial waters of Japan with their destroyers and aircraft carriers. They are threatening to go to war right now as we speak. But that's not to me, or those things to me, aren't the greatest indicator that the clock's about to strike midnight. The greatest indicator to me is what's going on with the nation of Israel and what's going on with the countries surrounding the nation of Israel. I mean, the Middle East is already on, in flames, but there, it's really a ticking time bomb that's about to go off at any second. All sorts of alliances are being made against the nation of Israel. Alliances made by countries who will come against the nation of Israel. And they're aligning with the Soviet Union. That's what's scary. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39 about this last day war and this alliance of Muslim nations that come against uh, Israel uh, who are aligned with Russia and that's exactly the alliances that are being made right now as we speak. And so now somebody sent me an article last week that the Russians have stationed troops or they've implanted troops eight kilometers from the Israeli border, northern border uh, near the Golan Heights. So that shows you how close, I mean, you, you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Russia and this alliance of Middle East nation comes down upon Israel in the last days. And that's exactly what we, that we see that alliance forming right now. But here's the exciting thing to me about the age in which we live. Before Israel was born as a nation in 1948, you could, there's no way you could have read Revelation and, say, and read the prophecies in Ezekiel and Daniel and elsewhere in the Old Testament and said that they could happen anytime soon because Israel was scattered all over the world. And you read these prophecies and it requires that Israel must be a nation again. And they became a nation in 1948. And so that tells me that we're, very, very close to the end. Uh, a lot of prophecy scholars believe that the parable that Jesus gave of the fig tree over in Matthew chapter 24 is all about Israel. So flip with me a minute and let's just look at that for a second. Now, the reason they believe that is because if you go back to the, we're studying the minor prophets right now, you go back to the minor prophets, you go back to Jeremiah, and over and over again, you see Israel uh, pictured as a fig tree. And then you go back to Matthew chapter 21, and you don't have to turn there, but remember what Jesus did with the fig tree. He was walking along with his disciples right before he gave the Olivet Discourse, and what did he do? He cursed the fig tree. Now Jesus wasn't being mean to the fig tree. The fig tree didn't have any fruit and he cursed that fig tree. But I have no doubt that that, that was a prophetic picture of what was going to happen in the immediate sense to the nation of Israel. He cursed the fig tree because it had no fruit. Jesus had come to Israel and, and as to proclaim his place, his rightful place on the throne of the nation of Israel as their king and they had rejected him as their king. He had looked at the nation and he had seen no fruit and so he cursed the fig tree and it was a picture of him cursing the nation of Israel. What happened to the fig tree? It withered up and died suddenly. And 70 years after, not really 70 years, 
40 years, four decades after Jesus cursed that fig tree, the nation of Israel was destroyed and they were scattered throughout the earth. And they never became a nation again until 1948. Now, that number is important. But let's look at the parable of the fig tree beginning in verse number 32 of Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Now, if you know anything about Matthew chapter 24, we'll be looking at this a lot as we go through the book of Revelation because Matthew chapter 24 is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, this is in the context of prophecy that Jesus is speaking. And listen to what he says. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to assume, I can't be sure of this, but we're going to assume that when he was speaking of the fig tree, he was speaking of Israel, the nation of Israel. It was symbolic of the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says. When its, when its branch has already become tender and it puts forth leaves. Now, here's a nation that he, here's a fig tree that he cursed back in 21. And that's a picture of him cursing the nation of Israel. And then now in chapter 24, after he gives the Olivet Discourse, he speaks of the nation being reborn again. That's a picture that he's given here. And it brings forth leaves. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree when the branches already come forth tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer, that midnight is near. It is just about midnight. When Israel became a nation in 1948, it was just about midnight. The end of man's rule on this earth was just about over. We, we know that. Summer is near. And he's speaking again in the, in the context of prophecy here. So you, will also, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is at, your do- at the doors. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all of these things take place. So what he's doing, he's saying from the birth of the nation of Israel, there will be one generation and then all of these things will take place and Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. It's going to be, it's going to all happen within one generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means uh, pass away. Now, here's where the problem comes in, that, in trying to interpret this parable. What's a generation? What's a generation? Well, the Bible has three. It uses three numbers or three periods of time to determine a generation. One is 40 years. Now, think about 40 years. 40 years from 1948 is what? 1988. So you see where this guy got this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Come in 1988. And the number one reason is that uh, that's 40 years from when the nation of Israel was formed. Chuck Smith the founder of Calvary Chapel, and he's been given a bad rap on this. Chuck Smith never set a date. But Chuck Smith at one time did strongly believe, and he expressed this to his congregation, and he expressed it on the radio uh, through his program, Word for the Day. But he expressed his belief that Jesus would come back in the rapture in 1981. He felt certain of that, he said. He felt certain of that, and he lived his life as if he was coming back in 1981, and he uh, uh, operated his ministry on the basis that Jesus would come back in 1981. How did he get to 1981? Well, where Wisenhant went wrong was he, he now this guy was a geologist, uh, a NASA scientist. He wasn't some idiot. I'm talking about Wisenhant, and he, and. And so, I mean, he, he, was, he, was, he was a Bible scholar. So he got 1988 with, from the 40 years to, the, to one of his main reasons was from the 40 years from, from 1948. 
How did Chuck Smith get 1981? Well, he believed that it would happen seven years before. The rapture would happen seven years before because he's a pre-trib rapture guy and uh, like we are, and he believed that the rapture would happen seven years before 1988, and that's how he came up with 1981. Well, guess what? It didn't happen in 1981. Chuck Smith was still there in 1982. Thank goodness he was still there. Thank goodness it didn't happen in 1981 because I got saved in 1989. And where, where I was at in my life in 1981, I would have been in some serious, serious trouble. Some of you might be in that same state. Some of you might not have been born. So, I mean, all of this, I mean, all of this is, is uh, you know, you see why the Lord delays. But we are getting very, very close. Now, here's something that's very interesting. Take 70 years, let's go to the generation of 70 years in the Bible, and 70 years from 1948 would bring you to Rosh Hashanah 2017. He's coming. Let me tell you something. Jesus is coming on Rosh Hashanah. We'll talk about this later on. Rosh Hashanah is the next feast to be fulfilled, the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, they were all fulfilled exactly on the day uh, of, the, of the feast. And the next feast is the Feast of Trumpets to be fulfilled. And so we're going to be raptured out. And the trumpet blows and we're raptured. So we're going to be raptured on Rosh Hashanah. So whenever Rosh Hashanah comes around each year, I get to thinking this might be it. Well, I'm really going to get to, I mean, it's my birthday this year. I mean, I, I can't think of a better year. 70 years from the date in which Israel was born, uh, reborn, I should say, uh, will be Rosh Hashanah 2017. So it very well might happen this year. I'm not setting dates. If any of you run out of here telling people, oh, the pastor said we're going to be raptured this year on September the 23rd on his birthday. I did not say that. I said it's a possibility. It's a possibility. And if this parable is a reference or it is symbolic of Israel, it's either going to happen this year or it's going to happen by uh, 19, uh, 2047 on Rosh Hashanah because that would bring us to the 100-year generation. And it's not going to go past that. So no matter what, let me tell you this. We are very, very close to the end. But the end is our beginning. What a great beginning. What a terrible time is going to come upon this earth in the great tribulation. But you and I aren't going to be here. We're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb for seven years celebrating. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. To see the Lord in his glory. And that's really what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not about the apocalypse in the sense a layman would, or a person, a secular person would see the apocalypse. It's all about us seeing the Lord. It's all about us being with the Lord. That's why I love the book of Revelation. Because it tells me about the time... I'm, I'm going to see the Lord, but it also tells me who the Lord is, who I'm going to see. You know, we're going to see here in just a few verses. We're not going to see it today. We're not going to get that far. But we're going to see here in just a few verses. John gets a revelation. John gets taken up into glory, and he sees Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And, and John doesn't say, hey, man, how's it been going? No, he falls on his face as dead. Because he sees Jesus as Jesus is, the glorified God Almighty. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. And that's why it's so exciting to me. Not only does it tell me that we're getting close, that it's going to show us that we're getting very close. It's going to show us what we're going to see when we get there. What we're going to see when we see the Lord. And it's going to be different from, from what a lot of people tell you it's going to be. It's going to be different than anything I can tell you because I don't know what, exactly what it's going to be. But we're going to get the best picture of it we can get anywhere else. Uh, the best picture we can get anywhere because uh, uh, 
that's revelation. That's what it's all about. All right. Now, Peter tells us, you remember Peter tells us in second Peter chapter three, he says, looking forward to these things, looking forward to the day of the Lord. We actually, Amos said, woe to those who look forward to the day of the Lord. Peter says, we long for the day of the Lord. There's a balance there. We, we dread that in the sense that we know people who aren't saved that are going to go through absolute hell on earth. But, but we long for it in the sense that we're going to be with the Lord. And, and again, that's what, why the book of Revelation is going to be so much fun to study for a while anyway. All right, now, it's a long book. The best part of Revelation is at the beginning and at the end. And if, if y'all start weeding out on me, we're going to skip the middle and we're going to go straight to the end. So uh, anyway, let's introduce the book. Well, at least we want to get that far today. Let me give you just a little bit of an introduction to the book. And, and, and probably the best place to find the introduction, it is the best place to find the introduction if you're given it, is in the book itself. And so if you will, turn to the book of Revelation and go to chapter number one and look down in verse number one and immediately you get the title of the book. There's the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Apocalypsis of Jesus Christos in the Greek. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis, what word do we get from apocalypsis? The apocalypse, no doubt. So it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's not about the end of things. It's about the beginning of things. It's about the revealing, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And that's really the theme of this book because Jesus is revealed to us not only as the Lamb of God, not only as the Word of God, but as King of kings and Lord of lords, as our creator and our judge, our almighty God. That's who you're going to see when you get into the book of Revelation. You can't go to the book of Revelation and look at it honestly and not see that Jesus is none other than Jehovah God. And, and I remember the first time I read the book of Revelation, that's what struck me the most was just the, the awesome uh, power of his deity, the often awesome presence of his deity that you see in these first uh, few verses of Revelation. And so uh, it's the revelation, the title is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and that's also the theme of the book. The theme of the book is, is the revelation of, of Jesus Christ as our King and as our Lord, as Almighty God. He gives us the author in verse number one. Let's look at verse number one and let's see if we can figure out who the author of Revelation is. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So let me ask you a question. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Y'all are all wrong. You missed it. John didn't write the book of Revelation. John was no more than a secretary. God wrote the book of Revelation. God gave him the things which will shortly take place and he sent it to him by an angel already written. He gave him a vision that he could see and all John did was write that down. So this is God's book. To us, he's the author. When was it written? Well, we know from verse number nine that John was the was on the Isle of Patmos. Some would say that 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 he died there on the Isle of Patmos. Some would say that he left, and then he wrote first, second, and third John later on. That he went back to Ephesus and wrote those books. I kind of agree with that. So I would date this book somewhere around ninety-five A.D. Now, who's the primary audience of this book? Well, in verse number four, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So in an immediate literal sense, it was written to the seven churches in Asia. 
But he gives us a clue that this wasn't just meant for them because look back at verse number one. He says in verse number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show who? His servants. Who was this book written to? It was written to the servants of Jesus Christ, to the servants of God, to us, to every, to every servant throughout every age. So that includes us. And the fact that it was written to his servants tells me something else, that this book can't be understood by just anybody. You have to be a servant of God in order to understand the book of Revelation. It was not written to anybody else. It was written to his servants. And you and I are his servants. You know, I don't know if you tried it before you were saved, but I remember on a couple of occasions, you know, because things would happen. And in my lifetime, we've seen all sorts of catastrophic events that might have signaled the doomsday or the apocalypse. And, and, and man, I would see something major happen. Uh, I remember even as a little kid when, when they were making us get under our chairs at school because we, of the threat of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, I remember getting the book of Revelation. I said, I'm going to read this thing. But I could read about two chapters and I'd get into maybe four. Then I'd get into chapter five, six, and seven. And man, I'd say, boy, I can't read this stuff. This makes no sense. I, I, I remember even as an adult later on uh, trying to read the book of Revelation before I was saved. And, and it just didn't make any sense. And then I rem rem remember reading it as a young Christian and it didn't make any sense. It, it just didn't make any sense. Well, in order for you to read this book and understand it, you have to be a servant of God. And a servant of God is in the Word of God, the entire Word of God. J. Vernon McGee said, used to say this. He said, Revelation is like a great train station where all the other books of the Bibles come into that station. And the station is nothing without the trains. If you, if you, if, if you take the trains away, there's no reason to have the station if you take out, away all the other books and you try to read the book of Revelation, you're not going to understand it because it's, it, it takes all the trains, all the other books, in order to understand the book of Revelation. There are over 350 quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. How are, and you've got to know those quotes in their context in order to understand the book of Revelation. Those of you, few of you, who are here on Wednesday night, uh, that, that come on Wednesday night, you're going to have a better understanding of this book because you've been studying the minor prophets and a lot of what's spoken in the minor prophets is quoted in the book of Revelation. If you've never met, read the minor prophets, if you've never studied the Old Testament, forget studying the book of Revelation. But let me say this. If you're a true servant of God, if you're a true servant of God, you are in the word of God. You should be studying this word on a daily basis. This is your food. This is your bread. It supernaturally changes you. It supernaturally feeds your soul. You starve yourself when you're not in the word. And those people who are in the word, you come to the book of Revelation and you can, you can start to understand it. It's still not easy, but you can start to understand it. Now, in this passage, uh, he also gives us the main purposes that he wrote the book. Now, the main purpose that he wrote the book is not so you can figure out who the Antichrist is. I'm sorry to say. The main purpose that he wrote the book isn't so that we can set a date. Now, we can get the sense. We can fill our spiritual nostrils with the sense that the time is very, very near as we read this book. But we can't set a date. He's not going to give us the information that will let us set a date, so don't ask me to set a date. I won't set a date. Unless it's my birthday, the 23rd of September. And, and his greatest purpose is very closely related to the theme of the book. And you can see that purpose in verse number two. Look what he says in verse number two. Who bore witness to the word. Who's the word? The Logos. John loved that name, the Logos, for Jesus Christ. I love that name, the Logos. That's why this word is so important to me. Because who is Jesus Christ? He's the word. You know, I get mad here for a minute, but I was listening to, 
I almost named his name. This guy who's selling tickets in Atlanta to come listen to him with his new gospel. Rob Bell's his name. I'll tell you his name. He, it's, he called it, you've heard of the emerging church? You don't need to be in the word. You don't need the word. You just need to know Jesus. Don't take this word literally. Take it literary as some piece of literature is what he says. Not the word of God. I swear to you, you don't believe anything else I've ever told you. This is the word of God. This word has changed me. Ask my wife if it hasn't changed me. And I want to be in this word. He is the logos. If you don't know the logos, the word, you don't know Jesus Christ. He is the word. That's who he is. You can't know him without his word. He is the logos. So, going on, I got off back on another subject here, but who bore witness of the Logos of God and to the testimony, the witness of Jesus Christ. What John, his purpose here is to witness who Jesus Christ is. Again, John knew Jesus Christ. There's no doubt he knew Jesus Christ. He walked with Jesus Christ and talked with Jesus Christ for three years, but he didn't really know him until he saw him in the revelation. He saw him in his glorified state. He saw him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He saw him at the right hand of the Father. He didn't know him until then. So John is going to give us a witness of who Jesus Christ really is in case you get, just get to thinking he's some man and that's all, all he is. John's going to witness to, to who he is and what he saw. And the main thing he saw, the most important thing he saw, was none other than Jesus Christ. Now, he saw some things that were going to happen before Jesus Christ takes his throne. But the main thing, and the main, shouldn't say thing, the, what he saw was Jesus Christ in his glory. Now, another purpose of this book, and I really like this purpose, because I don't know about you, but I love for the Lord to bless me. Don't you love for the Lord to speak to you and bless you? Well, that's exactly what he does in this book. Look at what he says in verse number three. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. Now, you're not going to hear unless you open up your hearts and open up your spirits. And you give attention spiritually to this book. You can't just read it as another book. You have to read this book spiritually. But when you do, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. prophecy, And keep those things which are written. Now, when he says keep those things which are written, I've read the book of Revelation no less than 15 or 20 times. And, and there's, there's no commands in there. There's no other command in there but to come to Jesus. So he's not talking about keeping commands here. He's talking about keeping this word near to your heart. In other words, blessed are those who hear this word and keep this word near to their spirits because why? The time is near. Now maybe that date is further off than we think. On the Jewish calendar, we're in year five. 1777. That's an interesting date, isn't it? Our calendar is different from the Jewish calendar, so you really can't pinpoint a time. But it could be 223 years. It could be that the generation that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the fig tree was 100 years. So we got a little while to go. But let me tell you what, the time is near. If you don't make it to the 100-year generation from 1948, you're going to make it to see Jesus one way or the other if you're a born-again believer. A hundred years from now, everybody in this room is going to have met Jesus or have met Satan personally. Some of you, not none of you, but some people know him well already. He was like my best friend before 1989. I don't want anything to do with him now. But you'll see the Lord face to face. The time is near. And that's what this book is about. It's about getting you into a frame of mind, a frame of spirit, that you realize that time is short. 
that your time to serve the Lord and worship the Lord and grow in the Lord is short. And you want to you, you want to be inspired. And so he wants to bless his servants who read this book and keep it near to their hearts. And every time, I can tell you this, every time I've ever read this book, I have, from, from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, I have been blessed. Very, very blessed. And every time I've read this book, one of the ways God has blessed me, he's shown me something new in this book. He's revealed another secret to me that, that I hadn't seen before when I'd read the book or studied the book the last time. Every single time he's done that. I, the book of Revelation is sort of like a big jigsaw puzzle. And you, every time you read it, you put a few more pieces together and you, and you don't have quite have the whole picture, but more and more as you get those pieces put into the puzzle, the more and more you see the, the, the final picture of what he's trying to show you. And he does that on purpose, so you'll dig. Proverbs say that, that treasure goes to the kings, kings and princes who dig for that treasure. You gotta dig for it. He wants you to dig for it. He wants you to be in the book of Revelation so he can bless you. And so, so there's a blessing here uh, uh, in reading this book. And I gotta tell you, every time I get into the book of Revelation and in my heart I sense that the time is near, I, it excites me. It excites me because we have such a great hope in Jesus Christ. We have such a great future in Jesus Christ. And every time I read these passages that show him in his glory, I'm blessed. When I realize that that's who died for me, almighty God, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, he died for me on that cross. That excites me that he loves me enough to die for me. And so there's a blessing in this book. Well, one last purpose before we close. Remember what he said in verse number one. He said, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Look, he didn't say the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his prophecy nuts. He didn't say that. He said to show his servants. God doesn't want us to get an education in this book, although that's part of it. That's not the main reason. He's not interested in us becoming prophecy scholars. Let me put it that way. He's interested in us, in, interested in us being motivated to want to serve him even more, to serve him in this kingdom on earth, this invisible kingdom, before the visible kingdom actually comes. And, and so when you read this book, one of the purposes of this book is to motivate you to serve God, to motivate you to keep going. Life is tough. We live in a tough world. God wants you, not necessarily, I'm not saying he wants you to be a pastor or a worship leader or whatever, but he wants you to be serving him in the place in life that he's placed you. And, he, and it's tough and you're going to want to quit. You're going to give up. And so you read the book of Revelation and it motivates you to keep going because time is short. The time is near. Now, we didn't get very far in the book today, but, but uh, we'll, pick up, we'll pick up there next time and get into some really, really good stuff. Wednesday nights, we're in the book of Habakkuk. And I love the book of Habakkuk. If you, if you, I almost, you know what I almost did? I started getting ready for Revelation, get ready for Habakkuk, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? We're going to go on Sunday mornings to Habakkuk. They need to hear this before we go into Revelation. But I've already tricked you all a couple of times, so I wasn't going to do it again. And I probably would have gotten tomatoes thrown at me and might not have made it to my birthday in Rosh Hashanah this year. So get a chance, read the book of Habakkuk. It's a great little book. And what makes Habakkuk such a great book for us is that the time in which he lived was exactly like the time in which we live, especially in the United States of America. Violence, he, he actually says this, violence are filling the streets. There's strife everywhere. 
There's strife in the government. There's, does that sound familiar? There's strife in, in, in the workplace. There's strife at home. And immorality in Habakkuk's day was rampant. The people had become depraved. And they actually hated God. They hated the God of the Bible. That's why when I got mad a while ago, I was reading that article about Rob Bell yesterday, and it makes me mad because it's like we're not going to accept the God of the Bible. We're going to make him into what we want him to be. You can't do that. And Israel, they considered themselves a religious people, but they had turned God into Baal. They had turned God into a pagan god, and then they had gone so far as to worship pagan gods in addition to worshiping Jehovah God. And Habakkuk says, Lord, what are you doing? How long, Lord, are you going to allow this state of wickedness to continue on? Why aren't you going to do something about it? And the Lord answered Habakkuk. And he told him, Habakkuk, I'm about to do a work in your day that you would believe unless I was the one who told you so. Habakkuk said, well, great, we're going to have a revival and everybody's going to get saved. No, he said, I'm going to bring the Babylonians down. Doomsday has arrived. The clock has struck midnight and I'm going to destroy the nation of Israel. Today we look around our world and it's the same as it was in the day of Habakkuk. And I asked that same question, Lord, how long are you going to put up with this wicked world? And the Lord answers me with the same answer he gave Habakkuk. And he answers you with the same answer he gave Habakkuk. I'm about to do a work in your day that you wouldn't believe unless I was the one who told you. What is the work that the Lord's about to do? Stay tuned to Revelation. We're going to see. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this great book that you've given us. And Lord, again, we, we, we just ask that as we continue on in the book in future weeks, and Lord, as we assimilate what we've learned today, that Lord, not only are we blessed by what we hear, but Lord, that we're motivated. We're motivated to serve you, to worship you, to help others come into a relationship with you. Lord, we ask that this book changes us, inspires us, excites us in such a way that, Lord, we draw closer to you We can only do that through your word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. We just thank you for who you are, Lord, our Savior, our God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. We just thank you so much that you were willing to die for us. It's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. We'll close with a song.